Our scene opens in a small village in deepest Cheshire. Young Niall Whittington had been kicked out by his landlord. Get out, student layabout! And decided to make his way northwards to Manchester to seek his fame, fortune and thesis. He had heard, after all, that the floors of the Jodrellbank Centre for Astrophysics were tiled with gold PhD theses. Utterly friendless, alone in the world, and without any money to his name, other than 40 grand in student debt, Niall Whittington found himself at the city limits of Manchester. Oh, however will I be able to find my way to the university from here? And how will I be able to earn an honest living? Fear not, young Whittington. Ooh, a princess. I don't know why I keep agreeing to do these pantos. Are you here to help me get to the university? To find fame and fortune? Say I'm not a princess. I'm not a princess. No, not you, me. Okay, say it then. Say what? Say I'm not a princess. You're not a princess. I know. (laughs) No, no, I am not a princess. Oh, Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, Oh, yes, you are. I'm not. I'm not a blooming princess. What an eccentric performance. No, I... Oh, what's the use? Here, have a cat who sounds exactly like John Barrowman. Doesn't sound much like John Barrowman. It depends on whether he chooses to speak to you. Bit convenient, isn't it? Now get lost. The university is that way. And so our hero set off towards the university, little realising that the evil King Rat was lying in wait. So, another fool is making his way towards our lair. I hate students, always getting discounts, eating all the food before we can get to it. I know your evilness. We're all starving. And he's got that cat with him. What? Oh no, not the John Barrowman cat. We must get rid of them. Go and find out what he wants and get rid of him. Right away, your putridness. Meanwhile, Niall had made his way to a research facility on the edge of town. Now, young Whittington, much as I'm loath to engage young labour at below minimum wage, I am going to entrust you with an important tax to watch over this portal and make sure nothing comes out. What's in it? It's a horrible place. A crack in the fabric of the universe. A window into a place of decay, death, and where pulses are actually a cool topic of study. That's awful. And why are you trusting me? You've only just met me. I, well, you seem to know what you're doing, and I like your cat. You can count on me, sir. Mom. Hello there, young man. Oh, look, a talking rat. So you're here for fame and fortune, are you? I am. I read somewhere that the floor tiles of the university are made from golden PhD theses. Well, this isn't the type of job for an aspiring young graduate. Why not have a snooze and I'll watch out for anything horrible coming through? Gosh, thanks. And so, Niall neglected his duties, trusting a rat to watch over an important but deadly portal. Whatever will happen. Meanwhile, back in the King Rat's lair... Your disgustingness! I've made sure he'll never be welcome in this city again. Excellent. You've done very well indeed. How did you get him to stay asleep? Poison? Magic? It was easy. I... Wait, don't don't tell me. Was it one of Brian Cox's documentaries? Not quite. I've put on a podcast. Do you have a direct audio link? Yes, your foulness. Right here. (laughs) 
less rude than your average pantomime. With Professor Tim O'Brien, Benjamin Shaw, Naomi Asabre Frimpong, Jake Morgan, Emma Alexander, and Monique Hansen. The Jotcast, December 2017 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jotcast. I'm Naomi and joining me in the studio are Jake and Emma. Say hello, guys. Hello. Hiya. In the show this time, Benjamin Shaw and Professor Tim O'Brien answer your astronomical questions. And we interview Professor Andrew Coates about the hunt for life in our solar system. But first, before all that, Monique Henson talks to Ian MacDonald in this month's Jodbite. Hi, I'm here with Dr Ian MacDonald from the University of Manchester. Welcome back to the Jodcast, Ian. Hello. Yeah, we've had you on for Ask an Astronomer, but somehow we've never interviewed you, which I don't know how that's been overlooked. So... I basically got you in today because I um, heard you do a lot of research on dying stars, but you've also had like an outside interest in genealogy, I think. And also you've done some stuff on transiting exoplanets and you're kind of moving into that area. So it sounds like you've got a whole range of cool things to talk about. Yes, that's right. I try and be a bit of a jack of all trades, um, which probably means I'm a master of none, but uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. It keeps me off the streets. Yeah, so if we start with kind of what I gather is the main thing you've worked on, which is dying stars, could you tell me a little bit more about what you do and why, you care, why you're interested in it? Okay, so the thing about dying stars is that we need to understand how we go from the Big Bang, where we have only hydrogen and helium, to something like what we have today, where we've got oxygen to breathe and nitrogen in the air and carbon in our bodies, and all these kind of different elements that we have. And all those elements get made in the stars – but in order to get out of the stars, the stars have to die and release their atmospheres back into space. That's the process that I've been looking at. If you look at something like your body, there's something like 90% of it has been made in the star. And if you look at something like the Earth, it's more than 99% of it has been made in the star. So we have to understand where these elements come from in order to understand things like, is the Earth typical? And what happens in other planets and other solar systems throughout the universe's history? Yeah, so I guess as well as actually studying um, how stars die for the sake of that's quite interesting in itself, it also informs things like um, people who study uh, solar system formation and planet formation but and also people who are looking for life. Yeah, so it gives us answers to a lot of questions um, from how do stars die, by which mechanisms is the universe chemically enriched, um, but it also tells us lots of things about things like how habitable is the universe, is there a chance of life elsewhere, mm-hmm. and how did we came, come into being? Oh, okay. And what um, is there a particular kind of like type of star that you tend to study as it dies? or? So I tend to look at the stars like the sun, um, or stars a few times the mass of the sun. Basically anything that's not going to go supernova, things that become a planetary nebula instead, mm-hmm. or even stars lower mass than that. I tend to look at the, the oldest stars in the universe, uh, which are more representative of the ones that have come before us more representative of the things that the solar system was made out of. Mm-hmm. I look at how they die. It's mainly red giant stars, and asymptotic giant branch stars. And we look at the dust production that happens in their circumstellar envelopes. So we get dust condensing around the star. And we also uh, look at gas coming off the stars as well. And what do you mean by dust? Well, we see, depending on the kind of star, we see two kinds of dust. We see Silicate dust, which is basically sand, Mm -hmm. and we see off carbon stars, we see carbonaceous dust, which is a bit like soot. Mm -hmm. And these sandy and sooty kind of dust mix together and form the dust belts that you see in the Milky Way and other galaxies. And how, I don't know how big a question this is, how is that kind of dust produced? Because I always think of stars as this like really hot, intense environment. And so something like dust seems really far away from that. 
So if you get a red giant star, it cools down to about 4,000 degrees or maybe even a little less than that. And what happens is that the star is pulsating and that pulsation lifts material off the stellar surface. And there's an environment around the star, the circumstellar environment, where pressures and temperatures are just right so that the atoms that are coming off the star can stick together um, to form molecules and then to larger molecules and then to small dust grains. So how do you study these dying stars? Like what do you, what do you actually do day to day? And, well, um... most of my day is spent swearing at a computer, probably like <laughs> most other astrophysicists. But um, we use a lot of different telescopes and a lot of different methods to look at this process because it's very complicated. There's a lot of things going on, which is why we don't understand it yet. Mm -hmm. We mainly look at things like um, the spectral energy distributions of the stars, so Mm -hmm. how much light comes off at different wavelengths. We look at, um, particularly in the infrared, because you can see dust features from specific kinds of dust. For example, the sandy silicate dust produces a big feature at 10 microns. So we see a lot of excess flux there. We also look at atomic spectra of stars. We see uh, which molecules are being produced. Um, things like titanium oxide, which is used in sunscreen, also acts as a, it's a bit of a sunscreen for stars. It, it cools the, um, the stars and makes them red. We also look at in the submillimeter. We've used the ALMA telescopes, for instance, uh, to look at carbon monoxide coming off these stars. It's very dangerous to humans, but it's also the most common molecule in the universe. Oh, wow. I never knew that at all. Well, yeah. apart from hydrogen. Well, well, yeah. I, it's, yeah, I get what you mean. <laughs> um, and so if you, you know, through observations, you can look at the amount of carbon monoxide around a star in that, that kind of environment. What does that tell you? Well, it tells us how much mass is coming off the star. Mm-hmm. Um, we can also tell what velocity it's moving at from how wide the line is. We can also say something about what's going on in the dynamics of the atmosphere, about how the um, material is coming off the surface, what forces are driving it, and how it's getting from the star uh, out of the deep gravitational well that the star has and into the interstellar medium. Ah, okay. And because I think a lot of the time when we talk about our research, we're talking fairly general terms, but what we do every day is like the real minutiae of the topic. So what for you, if this question is appropriate, <laughs> are the kind of the big questions that you have about how these stars die and the things that you really want to understand? Well, what we don't know is how stars lose mass. Mm-hmm. We don't really fundamentally understand how that works. We think what happens is these stellar pulsations lift material off the surface, and then the light from the star actually hits the, these dust grains and forces them away from the star, and that's how stars lose mass. But Exactly how stars lose mass probably depends on the kind of star you're looking at. If you're talking about a hot star, or if you're talking about a cold star, or if you're talking about a massive star or a less massive star, if you're talking about a star with lots of dust and lots of metals, or if you have a star with very few metals. So what I'm trying to do is understand how stars of different kinds lose mass. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this way, what we can do is we can say, okay, if I've got a star of this mass and this metallicity and this temperature and this radius, this magnetic field, uh, what rate is it losing mass? And we can give that information to people who model the evolution of stars. And they can use that to work out um, how stars live and how stars die and reproduce what we see in the universe at large. Mm -hmm. And that's very cool as well, because I can imagine that informing things like galaxy formation models as well, because the winds and stuff you get from stars affect 
the morphology of the galaxy in some way, I think. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of impact this has in different fields. Um, mm. If you change the mass loss from a star, you change everything about the kinetic feedback it has to the galaxy. So how well stars um, and galaxies are able to retain dust, how well clusters can form, um, how lo long a period over which clusters can form. You can change everything from the radioisotope decay that then goes into your planets and mm -hmm. dictates how uh, plate tectonics works. You can change the composition of the stars that are, that are forming in the next generation. You can make carbon stars. You might be able to make carbon planets. Carbon you, planets? You, you can make planets made out of diamond. Wow. If you get the conditions just right. Mm, that's pretty amazing. So it, it changes a lot of what we know about the universe. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's incredible. I... I'll admit, I genuinely never realised <laughs> how important stars were. <laughs> and I say that as a slightly embarrassed cosmologist. And not just twinkly things. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think often cosmologists are a little bit dismissive and unfairly so. <laughs> Definitely. So I know you've also done some kind of work on the side looking at transiting planets and things. How did you get into that? Well, I got into it through a bit of a stroke of luck, like mm -hmm. all the best decisions. I was doing a PhD at Keele University at just the same time as the SuperWASP project was starting up, and it was finding the first few dozen planets outside the solar system. Ah. But they had a lot more candidate planets than they knew what to do with. They didn't know which ones of those were real. Um, so I spent my nights um, going up to the university observatory and taking light curves of these potential planets. Most of them turned out not to be planets, but um, a lot of them did turn out to be planets. And uh, I helped discover about six planets um, during my PhD because of that process. That's amazing, genuinely. And because, you know, the field of extraterrestrial planets, I feel like it's gone from, you know, something that seemed fairly theoretical almost to something that's just exploded. Um, I know when I was in school, it was more like looking at tens or hundreds of planets. And now it's they're finding loads every day. And you were a part. Of that as well. Yeah, it's just a case of being in the right place at the right time and knowing what to do. I know, but it's still a contribution. Mm. <laughs> uh, and now you're looking at moving to that field a little bit more, is that right? Yeah, so I've changed tax slide with my research. I'm now looking at extrasolar planets um, for my day job. And that's spending my time looking partly for free-floating planets, which are planets not attached to a star, and partly looking at the characteristics of the planets that we already know about going around stars. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess that involves a lot of going back to the literature if you're changing fields as well. That's got to be quite a... So you said um, free-floating planets. I never knew that was a thing. How does that happen? Nor did anyone else until fairly recently. We okay. don't know exactly how they happen. We don't mm -hmm. know how many of them there are. That's part of what I'm going to find out. Mm. But there's two main mechanisms by which you can form free-floating planets. Mm -hmm. Firstly, you form them out in space. You just have a planet condensing out of gas and dust in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Or secondly, you have several planets going around the star, and one of them gets kicked out by gravitational interaction with the others. They must be are they harder to detect as well, because I guess you know a lot of the transit-type methods you wouldn't necessarily be able to use unless you were just very lucky. Or No, yeah. so the, the main reason that we can't see these free-floating planets, mm. and the reason that we don't know about them very much, is because we don't have any method of actually finding them directly. Mm -hmm. They're too cold to emit in normal wavelengths of light. We have to go really far into the infrared, and we can't see that from the ground. So we really struggle to actually detect them directly. But what we can do is we can wait for them to occult a different star. Mm -hmm. So if they pass between us and a background star, 
what happens is that that passage isn't usually directly over the star. It's mm -hmm. often slightly offset. But that's sometimes enough for um, gravitational microlensing to take effect. So what we do is we wait for this planet, free-floating planet, to pass in front of the star, and we observe a little bit of magnification as the source crosses what's known as the Einstein ring. So that's the, the region which Albert Einstein predicted that we should get gravitational focusing of light. So for that kind of thing, do you already have to think there might be a transiting planet there? Or is it more a case of observing lots and lots of stars and hoping you'll find something? Like, How do you even go about that? So we don't uh, know anything's there mm. um, because we haven't, haven't been able to see it. But obviously this only happens once. Mm -hmm. So we don't know where to predict it either. Yeah. The only real chance we've got is to actually look at a large number of stars for mm -hmm. a long time and wait and hope we see something. So that's what these surveys do where we go out and we look at places like the Galactic Bulge where there's millions of stars in a single image and you just watch them and wait for something to happen. Yeah, no, I can imagine that's got to be really difficult because even, you know, even if you do manage to catch one, it only happens once. <laughs> so you can't check your, no one can confirm your results necessarily in the same way, which has got to be tricky. Yeah, so that's what, we, um, what happens is that we find something that's interesting. We say to everyone, hey, this is interesting, go and look mm -hmm. at it. And over the few days it takes for a typical stellar microlensing event to take place, we watch it very carefully and we wait and see if there's any extra blips in there that might be planets. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. And I guess it requires a lot of um, like fast follow-up type things as well. Right? Yeah, so it involves mm -hmm. a lot of um, going to robotic observatories mm -hmm. or pinching time on small observatories that uh, are not sitting useless, but uh, sitting waiting for projects like this mm -hmm. to happen. Mm, that's very cool. So briefly going back to what your main focus has been up until this point, um, which I guess hopefully you'll still be able to do some of, what are the things that you're looking forward to in that field? Like whether it's, you know, new observatories or kind of new areas of discovery or anything? So the thing we're looking forward to in both the exoplanet world and the evolved star world is the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope is a big telescope is going to go into space and that allows us to look at infrared wavelengths that we can't see from the ground. That's useful for AGB stars because we can now look at the dust around the AGB stars again, whereas previously we've only had the Spitzer telescope which has stopped working. And in the exoplanet community we can actually look at some of the molecular features in the atmospheres of the, these um, transiting exoplanets, these very hot Jupiters that we've helped find. Uh, so I didn't actually realise that you know, there's been this period in the evolved star community where you didn't have an infrared observatory that you could use. How has that affected research in that community? Well, a lot of people have had to go and look at different things and people have mm. had to look at archival data. So we've, mm -hmm. there's been a lot of going back to old observations and seeing what else we can extract from them that we haven't been able to do previously because we haven't had the time. But now we're looking at ramping up things both from the ground. We've got new ground-based observatories and instruments that can look in the infrared. But there's still wavelengths that we can only look at from space. So the main focus now is to look at how we can best prepare for the, the new observations that the James mm. Webb Space Telescope is going to do. 
that's very cool. And I, I mean, I guess there are some good things about having that time to go back through archival data as well. Because I, I mean, I can't remember that statistic, but there is a horrifying statistic about the amount of astronomy data that's created and never used. So I guess hopefully this means more of it is used. But it's, uh, it certainly is. Yeah. We've had several uh, publications recently where we've gone back and picked out every single star in the Magellanic Clouds. Oh, wow. It's been observed with Spitzer IRS, and we've published a point source classification catalogue on all of them. Mm -hmm. And there are hundreds of stars um, mm. in these fields, and there's been a major international effort to actually coordinate the observations together. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I guess this kind of brings me on to the other bit of research you do in your free time, which I am completely fascinated by. How did, well, what, what kind of things are you interested in, and how did you even start doing that? Uh, well, one of the great things about being an astrophysicist is you've got a lot of transferable skills that um, a lot of people don't um, necessarily have in the wider scientific community, never mind the general public. And you get uh, trained up on a number of things, one of which is statistics, which is really useful. So what I've done on the side is I'm actually a um, honorary fellow at the University of Strathclyde in genealogy, paleography and heraldry. None of which I know anything about, but um, they've hired me for my experience with the uh, genetic project. And in these genetic projects, people go and take a DNA test and they find out that they're descended from this particular branch, whichever one it may be, of the human family tree. You can get tests at the male line, you can get tests at the female line, and you get, can get general tests. What I've been looking at is the male line tests. What we can do with those tests is we can work out how the peopling of Europe has progressed from... You know, tens of thousands of years ago, when we've got the first people coming into Europe, right up to the modern day, um, and historical migrations, um, like the Romans or the Vikings or Normans or the Anglo-Saxons, all these kinds of people. And what I've been able to do is use the statistical techniques that I've learned astronomy to help go back and work out when these kind of migrations happened and where the people who were participating in them came from. Wow. And what, what kind of things have you found out? Well, we've found out quite a lot of things, partly through collaboration with the archaeological DNA community, um, who've gone to ancient burial sites and actually performed the same kind of tests on the bodies that they found there. Mm -hmm. We can find that certain populations of the British Isles or elsewhere descended from certain other populations. We found, quite surprisingly, that about 5,000 years ago, uh, there was a massive invasion of people from the West Eurasian steppe into Western Europe via the courted ware culture. We found that descendants of those cultures now occupy about 40% of the male lines of Europe. Wow. So when you say the uh, West Eurasian steppe, whereabouts is that? So that's modern Ukraine, uh, the Western part of Russia, and wow. those sorts of areas. So their genes are in they account for forty their genes are in forty percent of the population, is that what you meant? Or Yeah, so so everyone has these genes. Mm -hmm. Um and forty percent of the direct male lines that we see okay. are descended from this one individual that lived five thousand years ago, came over from West Eurasia into probably somewhere near modern Germany. That's incredible. Wow. I guess I mean when you think about the maths then that kind of thing does happen, but it's when you just say it out loud, it's, it does sound amazing. Yeah. yeah. So we found a, a lot of interesting different mm -hmm. things. Uh, found uh, a distant cousin of mine was buried in York in the 3rd century AD. He's a Roman gladiator. Wow. I uh, found that I'm the 150th cousin to the Queen. That is closer than I would have expected. <laughs> yes. yeah. It's only about 1% of the population that can say mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And we found a variety of other people throughout Europe who've got similar stories. Mm -hmm. We found that some people descend from Norman knights. 
we found people who descend from uh, prehistoric peoples in Scotland from 10,000 years ago. We found a lot of interesting family stories for individuals as well. So we've been mm -hmm. able to link them back to different peoples on the European continent. And we've found lots of things that aren't true as well. Like we found that people's ancestries aren't what they thought they were. We've found things uh, like adoption cases where we've managed to track down the biological parents. Wow. And the reason I got into genetic testing in the first place was to dis discover whether I'm a McDonald descended from the Lords of the Isles. Turns out I'm not, but uh, that's uh, another story in itself. Oh, wow. No, that's incredible. And, that, you know, from what you said there, you can really see the human aspect to all of that research, because even though you're using the same skills as what you use in astronomy, you know, finding out about adoption cases that people weren't aware about is, you know, a very human story. Yeah, so it's, um, it's putting human context on the whole of history. It's rather than looking at pots and what shape they are. Yeah. We're looking at real migrations of people and how individuals have lived and died. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's incredible and absolutely fascinating to hear how an astronomer, how you've been a part of that, because that's, you know, people often say, oh, you've got all these transferable skills, but you don't, it's so rare that you actually see it used in practice like that in such a fascinating way. So given that you do so many different topics of research, you know, some in your free time, some as your job, you know, what is the thing for you that brings it all together that makes you do all of those things? I think the best way to describe that is how we came to be, who we are, and where we are today. It's a big story that goes right the way back to the Big Bang, but it goes all the way through the stars that have lived and died and produced the chemical elements in our bodies, to how planets and the solar systems form and evolve, to whether there's life out there in the universe and how we came into being as a species, all the way up to the present day when we're looking at how we as individuals came to be through the migrations and the evolution of our ancestors. So it's really a big story from you know, the most fundamental principles of the universe right up to the personal details of the modern day. Fantastic. And thank you for sharing it with the Jodcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great to have you. Thanks very much. Thanks for that, Monique. Now, Emma Alexander interviews Professor Andrew Coates about the hunt for life in our solar system. I'm here with Professor Andrew Coates from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory at University College London. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Pleasure. Um, to give you a quick introduction, um, you got your BSc in physics um, here from, from UMIST, didn't you? So yeah. uh, welcome back to Manchester. Thank you. <laughs> um, since then, you've uh, done your MSc and DPhil in plasma physics from uh, Oxford University. And uh, as well as being part of the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, um, you've also held positions at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Physics in Germany and uh, the University of Delaware in the USA. And uh, you've had a media fellowship at the BBC World Service, That's I right. see. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you're now Deputy Director um, Solar System at the at UCL MSSL, and uh, you lead the, the PANCAM team for the ExoMars 2020 rover. Um, so, yeah, very, very interesting career so far, it seems. Um, I've been so lucky with my career, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, see, yeah. I see you've been uh, involved with and, and led aspects of a, a fair few space missions, uh, including Cassini and the Venus and Mars Expresses. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the, these projects you've been involved with? Yeah, some Cassini of the was, uh, was something which was absolutely amazing. I mean, this was something which, uh, which happened after the first mission I was involved with, really, was the Giotto mission to, Holly, to Halley's Comet some years ago, um, so back in 1986, and actually 
actually just before that we had a practice with an artificial comet mission, which was the Amity mission. But then Cassini, um, we started that in um, in 1989, so uh, that's when we wrote the proposal for the instruments. So sort of 28 years ago. Um, so it's been a huge part of my career actually working on Cassini. So. I was lucky enough to lead the electron spectrometer, which is part of the Cassini plasma spectrometer. And we made lots of fantastic discoveries at, at uh, Saturn itself, but also at Titan, at Enceladus, and at some of the other moons of Saturn. So that um, has been, you know, one of the amazing things to be able to be involved in that mission really from the start, see it through as we built the instrument. Well, first of all, got the money, then built the instrument um calibrated it, tested it, made sure it was going to work in the environment, launched it um, back in 1997. Uh, so I was lucky enough to go to the launch of that. And then um, we got to Saturn in 2004, um, and it's been, uh, you know, up until recently, it was exploring Saturn um, really ever since. And so some fantastic results. It's really rewritten the textbooks about the Saturn system. And, um, I mean, from our instrument, we discovered really huge hydrocarbon molecules in the atmosphere of Titan. Oh, wow. um, so that was one of our amazing discoveries, up to 14,000 um, times the mass of hydrogen. So really huge hydrocarbons. And so that could be even pre prebiotic life. So very exciting stuff. Mm, and uh, of course, uh, Cassini made its uh, final descent um, into into Saturn uh, very recently. How how did you feel when when that mission was over? Yeah, fifteenth of September. I mean, having worked on it for so long, um, you know, it's a very bittersweet feeling that you get. Um, I mean, very sweet because, of course, the the, the instrument and the mission had really fulfilled its uh, its purpose and been able to discover lots of lots of exciting results. But bitter in a way because, um, you know, something which we spend years building and calibrating and testing and making sure it's going to work um, finally ends up as being part of Saturn. So literally the whole spacecraft burnt up on the 15th of September to, um, uh, to, to become part of Saturn. And actually I was helping the BBC with some coverage of it at the time. So there's um, myself in the BBC World Studio and... Um, Rebecca Morell in the uh, in JPL in Pasadena at um, the, the operation centre there, and we were doing a sort of um, down the line about it, and um, uh, and you know as we were doing that, that's when the signal was lost, and that was really quite a feeling, and I have to admit, you know, a tear came to my eyes, really the end of this mission, and because um, such a lot of my career um, on it, but uh, but it's been so great, and you know, still lots of publications coming out, working with lots of PhD students, they're still getting their degrees, and um, you know, doing their own first papers on it, so really exciting stuff, and it's going to be exciting for many years to come. Oh, brilliant! And uh, of course, now that you are you're working on the ExoMars twenty. 20 rover specifically the uh the 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 pan cam uh, could you tell me a little bit more about that and uh, what science you hope to do with it yes well the exomars 2020 mission is uh, is something which is going to, a rover mission which will land on the surface of mars it will be able to move around the surface but the really new thing about it is go- is being able to drill underneath the surface up to two meters so that takes it well beyond um, what previous missions could do so currently the curiosity rover is on the surface of mars that's the nasa nasa one uh, and that can drill five centimeters so we will be able to do 40 times better than that to actually get underneath um, the sort of really harsh environment on the surface of Mars to look for potential signs of life um, a long time ago. But our instrument is the Panoramic Camera System, or PANCAM for short, um, and that in itself is an international collaboration. So we're leading a team which um, involves, as well as people at UCL, uh, we have um, uh, Germany, so there's um, some 
the um, uh, German um, Institute uh, for Planetary Research there, and also working with industry in Germany, with industry in, in Switzerland as well, uh, with University of Aberystwyth in Wales as well, and uh, a truly international science team which goes across the continents, you know, with US, French and German and lots of different people involved in it. So we're leading this this huge team, but we're actually building the camera system, which will be the scientific eyes of the ExoMars rover. So with this, we will be able to actually select the interesting targets to look for in terms of where to actually drill um, to get to get underneath the surface to look potentially for signs of life. So it's a very exciting um, mission, a very exciting instrument. The instrument itself um, uh, includes some subsystems. So there's two wide-angle cameras, uh, which are separated by about 50 centimetres. Um, so those stand higher than a person above the surface of Mars, and so we can get very um, good stereo reconstruction near the rover. And it can also see at great distances away as well. Um, and so with that combination, we're able to do geology um, and um, and also atmospheric science. And then we have another camera, which is the, the high-resolution camera, and that can look at textures of rocks. So that helps with geology as well. So this is all part of a, a suite which is looking at the context of where we're getting the, the samples underneath the surface from. So we're sort of deciding where to drill as a result of our scientific data. So it's a very um, sort of responsible position um, to be you know, basically the scientific eyes, because of course, you know, it's the first thing everybody wants to know, you know, where are we, what does it look like, and, and, and but we've packed as much science as we possibly can into what is basically a camera system, with uh, 11 filters on each of the wide-angle cameras, um, and so we can do not only that geological science, but also some atmospheric science as well, look at the water in the Mars atmosphere, and dust in the Mars atmosphere as well. We can actually work out from looking at, because uh, we, we've got three filters which are um, around a, an absorption feature feature of water so we can look at the depth that absorption feature and see how much water there is in the um, area of the Mars atmosphere above our heads and that leads into atmospheric escape so that is where my scientific interest lies in terms of uh, the analysis of data but I've got lots of people working with me on on the geology and you know working out where to drill and all this stuff and um, so I'm you know just amazed to be uh part of this team and to be leading the team which is actually uh, building this fantastic instrument. Yeah, it, it sounds absolutely incredible and it, it seems like it's, it's going to be a very important uh, piece of, I mean I'm sure all, all of the equipment going onto the rover is uh, important in, in its own way, um, but it, it seems like, yeah, it, it's such a crucial part of it. And what, what kind of thought goes into designing such an instrument and do you have to take into special consideration when building it compared to say a camera that will stay on earth and not be uh, sent sent off to mars yeah one of, one of the key real differences of mars compared to earth um there's first of all the atmospheric pressure at the surface which is much lower it's about one percent of the earth's atmospheric pressure so obviously it's got to work in that environment but because of that low atmospheric pressure that means the radiation environment is higher on the surface so that's one one thing which is different again uh, and then the, the key really different thing, I think, is the fact that we can, we're looking at um, very low temperatures on the night side of Mars. So on the, on the sort of sunlit side of Mars, it's maybe sort of Manchester on a nice-ish day of sort of 0 to 20 degrees, uh, perhaps. Um, and then at night, minus 120 degrees centigrade. And every night, it goes down to that. So Mars's day, or Sol as it's called, is just over 24 hours, so a little bit longer than our day. But every day, um, the, the instrument and everything is being cycle down to that very low temperature so it's got to be able to survive that so one of the key things is to 
design the engineering to be able to survive that temperature um, uh, sort of swing really from from the night side to the day side and then to test it make sure it will work and so on so it's got to be extremely rugged we've also got to be very careful along the way not to take life with us from earth because uh, the mission is going to be looking for life on mars and the last thing we want to do is take terrestrial life along of course yeah so that that leads me on to another question um in that what what evidence do you look for when searching for for signs of life and uh, i guess also how would you know that that life was from mars um and not contamination from from an earth-based source or when when you're making the rover yeah so with when we're making the rover we're very careful about contamination so there's something called planetary protection which sounds uh sounds like a racket or something but but <laughs> what it is is trying to make sure that we're not taking life from earth to mars um and so we have to be very careful about the way in which we clean everything, sterilising it at, at very high temperatures to make sure that there's a very low spore count. And this, again, is another of the you know, big challenges of this type of mission compared to missions which might be going into orbit around either Mars or even Saturn. Um, I mean, there wasn't really that, um, that level of detail went into the thinking about Cassini, for example. But at the end of Cassini, that is why Cassini actually had to be burnt up in the atmosphere of Saturn, because oh, we couldn't leave it flying around um, in Saturn's environment, because it might potentially hit places like Enceladus or Titan, where life could either be or could develop in the future perhaps um so yeah the 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 making sure everything is clean enough um is important so our optical bench which actually houses all of the cameras um the two wide angle cameras and the high resolution camera uh they're housed inside an optical bench and part of the the reason for that is not just to hold the cameras with respect to each other but another thing is is to make sure the planetary protection is right so bits from the inside are not getting out and so that could potentially mess up the life detection experiments so as for detecting whether there could be life on mars i mean there's a number of of things we're looking for there um i mean obviously to to have life develop anywhere else we need um we need the right chemistry we need um, water we need a source of heat and we need enough time for life to develop so what we're looking for is is the building blocks of life really so it's things like amino acids and uh, and then one important thing is chirality so whether molecules are left-handed and right-handed that's another thing which we can detect with this rover and also isotopes looking at carbon 12 and carbon 13 again one of those is used by life one isn't and so we're able to sort of build up the evidence for um not only habitability but potentially signs of actual life and then of course it would be amazing to just see from underneath the surface a fossil that would be just amazing and um i mean either way with any of this you know if we would detect life there's definitely nobel prizes galore in this um so it's a fantastic um question it's probably one of the big questions for humankind at the moment really of um of is there life anywhere else in the universe and um you know one of the places we can start looking is mars um and then the outer planet moons places like uh, europa at jupiter um and uh, potentially although less likely ganymede but also callisto all of those have subsurface oceans jupiter's moons um, and so the juice mission will be going there in a few years time launching in 2022 gets to the jupiter system in 2030 and goes into orbit around ganymede in 2032 so it's something which my younger colleagues are going to be working on um but uh you know and then at saturn there's enceladus and titan again which are 
both potentially places for life. So, you know, we need to look at those three things, really, of Mars um, and then the outer planet moons, and in particular Europa and Enceladus, but also with a, a close fourth being Titan. So all of those are potentially places where, where there could either be or have been life or may even be in the future. And this is one of the things which is driving our solar system exploration at the moment. Oh, brilliant. Which one of those personally do you think is most likely to uh, be the, the place we might find life? Well, I, I think it depends when. So the next thing we're going to, of course, with this sort of thing is Mars. So I'll have to say Mars because I, th- I think we have, it's the best chance of any mission going to Mars of actually detecting life. And so this is the uh, this is the most likely place mm-hmm. where we could potentially find it. But interestingly, from the Cassini mission at Saturn, there's been lots of um, evidence building up about Enceladus being a habitable environment and also potentially Titan as well. Um, and so there's there's lots of evidence for that. I don't think we'll have another mission there for the next 20 or 30 years, perhaps. Then at Jupiter, the JUICE mission gets there in, in 2030. So I think in terms of when we're going to find it, I think it's more likely within the next few years. And we hope to do it with the ExoMars rover. Brilliant. I suppose, yeah, with, with the timescales involved in uh, in missions like these, it is, it is sometimes a case of where, where are we going to next? I mean, ideally, I suppose, we'd be uh, going to visiting everywhere we can as soon as possible. But, yeah. Uh... And I mean, and as a scientist, I mean, there, there are, you know, there's each of them have advantages and disadvantages of whether there could have been or could be life. I mean, I think with Mars, we're really looking at the most likely thing is that Perhaps there was life 3.8 billion years ago. So bearing in mind that Mars and the other planets are 4.6 billion years old, this is back in history about the same time that life was developing on Earth. So these would be very simple life forms on Mars. But at places like Enceladus and Europa, where we have subsurface oceans underneath icy crusts and the right sort of species and um, ingredients for life, there could even be life now. Um, that is the case for Mars as well, but um, but I think you know, in terms of you know our our whole perception of the habitable zone has really sort of changed really in the last few years with the Cassini mission. I think to um, uh, to say well you know these outer planet moons are places where you could potentially have life as well. So we, we're looking not only for water on the surface and the importance of water where we we know that's the case on mars the sort of habitable zone where we have the right radiation balance with the sunlight coming in um and so you know you get about the right temperature basically for water to be there on the surface uh and that with with mars was the case 3.8 billion years ago it's not now so you know so all of them are potentially good places to look um and i think you know my bet might be that Enceladus could be a really good place to look right now exciting um i know also that your you and your group are involved with studying uh solar wind interaction um with the with the magnetic fields of uh, solar system objects um what what can studying these fields tell you about the the conditions uh, on those planets and and its impact on on its ability to host life Right. One sort of key feature with uh, with anybody, um, any you know, solar system body in the solar wind, is um, is whether it has a magnetic field. So that's a, that's a key feature. But probably we should describe the solar wind a bit as well, because the solar wind is a, is a stream of material coming out of the sun all the time. So it's a plasma, fourth state of matter beyond solid, liquid, and gas. Um, it's in this plasma state, and that interacts with different objects in the solar system. So because it's charged particles, it can depend. It can be um, sort of 
deflected in magnetic and electric fields. So the fact of, of a body having a magnetic field is very important um, in deflecting the solar wind, for example, around the Earth. So our home, the Earth, has its own magnetic field, um, which we know about from a lot of different um, uh, features. It, it has a magnetic field, and that protects not only us, um, but also our atmosphere from things like the solar wind um, flowing past, but also cosmic rays from the galaxy, so very high-energy um, particles, which are potentially problems for, for life, um, and then also from solar energetic particles, again, hundreds of millions of electron volt particles, which, again, that can be can be a problem for human systems. And so um, uh, so the magnetic field is, is one of the key differences. And so if we look at the Earth, uh, but also Mercury, Uranus and Neptune, Saturn and Jupiter, all of these have magnetic fields, and they vary in scale going up hugely and so jupiter the really enormous magnetic field in the solar system saturn is second um, earth is somewhere down the rankings um, but uh, but nevertheless it's been important for us in in life developing on earth and so i, mean, I think in some sense the magnetic field provides a bit of a cradle for life and so the existence of a magnetic field is is important for life developing on any particular object so it's not just the balance of temperatures which mean you've got water but there's also the, um, uh, the the fact that the radiation conditions have to be right which means having a magnetic field so mars for example is one of the objects which does not have a magnetic field but it does have an atmosphere um, and so the atmosphere is now relatively thin compared to the earth's atmosphere but we think that 3.8 billion years ago it was much thicker, and there's evidence for that is building up now from the from the recent missions, including Mars Express and Maven. Um, and so those um, missions are showing us that Mars's atmosphere was probably at least our the atmospheric pressure that we have on Earth now, um, and probably there was it was a very temperate climate with clouds, water on the surface, and all this sort of thing. And so about the same conditions that life was um, uh, developing on Earth at around about the same time. So, you know, this is why we think that Mars is maybe the the most likely nearby candidate for hosting life. Venus, which also lacks a magnetic field, is too warm. Um, and runaway greenhouse effect, Runaway right? greenhouse effect, yeah. So the surface, you know, you can melt lead on the surface. Oh, wow. Very thick atmosphere, um, very hostile for life, carbon dioxide. Yes, exactly. Greenhouse gone mad. And, um, uh, and so, and that you know, there may have been water early on, um, but that was lost pretty quickly and started off the greenhouse effect. And that's been kept going by this carbon dioxide, no liquid water on the surface, unlike the Earth. And so the Earth and Mars are maybe the right sort of things for a, for a habitable zone. But then the idea of the habitable zone having changed, really, to include these anywhere where conditions are right, including these outer solar system moons of uh, particularly Europa and Enceladus and Titan. Um, so these are now sort of coming up into the top three or four places to look for life um, elsewhere than Earth. Fascinating stuff. Um, I think we've got time for one one last question. So you mentioned a couple of uh, upcoming uh, missions uh, to various bodies in our solar system. If you yourself could uh, fully design and uh, send off a some kind of rover or probe uh, into space, what what kind of mission would, would you like to see happen, ideally, for your, for your own personal interest? Well, for my own personal interest, I think a return to... Titan would be fantastic. Um, Titan, and if it can do Enceladus as well, that would be great. Um, both of those um, are potential places for life. Um, and so 
What we really need to do is very high resolution mass spectro uh, spectroscopy in the uh, in the plumes of Enceladus and also in the atmosphere of Titan. Um, at the very top of the atmosphere, we've discovered very large organic molecules, up to 14,000 AMU. And, um, and those are sort of prebiotic. And so studying that in more detail tells us about how life could have kicked off on the early Earth, actually, because the atmosphere is much like the early, the early Earth. And then Enceladus, we may have life there now. We might be able to get the evidence from this sort of chemical analysis of those plumes. So for me, that would be a really exciting mission to um, uh, to go to, but um, but we want to go to Mars first because the the the, uh, the possibility of the being light, you know, it's relatively close, relatively accessible. All we have to do is drill up to two meters underneath the surface, which we'll do the, with the ExoMars rover. So I'm just very excited about the next few years of space exploration. Brilliant. Well, uh, we'll keep our eyes peeled for for news about that mission. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Uh, but thanks again for joining us, Andrew. Pleasure. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thanks for that, Emma. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, Jake, what do you have for us today? Well, what I've got today is part of a scientific odd and end and part of just a general rant of something I saw a couple of days back. So, a couple of days back, I was looking through the front pages of the newspapers and I happened to see on the front page of The Guardian the ESO's concept art of the asteroid Oumuamua, which, of course, I recognise because I reported on that last month as part of our December news. And, well, seeing as I have you both here, would you, would you hazard to take a guess as to what the caption was that oh, was attached to that picture? Those are always sensational. So this is the front page of what markets itself as a respectable newspaper. Uh, Space boy floats nearby. I, I don't know. I, 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 it's going to be something sensational, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Guess. <laughs> so the headline for this story was: Could this be an alien spaceship? Really? Yeah. Oh my god! You say that? Haven't they actually been doing some studies just in case it could possibly be an alien spaceship? Well, as it happens, they are. The story behind the sensationalist headline is actually pretty sensible. It goes back to the Breakthrough Listen group, and we had a special on their activities in March Extra of this year. And our head of school, Professor Mike Garrett, is involved with Breakthrough Listen and SETI activities. So what they've been able to do is they've been able to get some time on the Green Bank Radio Telescope over in the States to point it at this interstellar asteroid. Well, it's in our solar system now, but it is known to be of interstellar provenance. Okay. And they're going to point this radio telescope at it and see if there are any radio emissions coming from it, which would be associated with technology, an artificial signal of okay. some kind. Okay. What, yeah, what, sounds... what would those kind of signals look like? Um, I'm afraid I'm not sure. I'm not a radio astronomer. <laughs> I feel, as a radio astronomer, I feel like uh, I should have. But I recently watched um, Contact, the film. Have either of you guys oh, seen yeah. it? Yeah, and uh, with, with that, getting the, picking up some uh, potentially... Uh, the, the, well, radio I don't, I don't, I don't want to spoil the film if anyone hasn't seen it. I would recommend giving it a watch. I really enjoyed watching it. Um, but yes, they picked up some uh, alien signals with the um, VLA, the Very Large Array, uh, over in America in the film. So uh, I'm guessing they were, they were maybe hoping for something a bit like that. Hmm. So they're studying the asteroid for radio signals? Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Yes. And if we do f 
um, detect radio signals? What will be the out? So we just say, oh, because radio signals are coming from this asteroid, it's possibly there is. It's possible there is a technology on the asteroid, or some aliens are doing something. I imagine that, so. We're, we're wow. not expecting to see any radio signals. I want us to get radio signals, so you can just you can open a new um, door for discussions like. What are those radio signals? What mm. could you... <laughs> so, yeah, it would be quite the coup if they managed to find <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. That would be so cool. So, yeah, but the BBC have also reported on this story, and one of the well, consultant astronomers they got in was a certain Professor Andrew Coates. Perhaps you've heard oh. of him. Come on, we've got to interview him <laughs> in the <this> show. <laughs> yeah. And so he was sceptical of finding any radio signals, as a good scientist should be, and naturally took Skeptical? the opportunity... <laughs> And he naturally took the opportunity to plug ExoMars, which in all likelihood will be a more likely prospect for possibly finding mm. life in the solar system. Oh, but okay. seeing as we have access to this radio telescope and the object is passing through, we may as well have a look. We might as well. I mean, it, it seems like it's Doesn't a very, very anybody to just point a telescope at it and see whether you can get any signals or not. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so the underlying science is pretty sound, but the headline made me quite angry. I think I've noticed this a lot in news recently of sensationalised headlines. This isn't just within science, I think. I think this is a general phenomenon of uh, mm. things being sensationalised a lot. Yeah. But, uh, you need to sell papers, you know. Exactly. They yeah. do. Yeah. So, yeah, we have an advantage in that we don't have to monetize or sell what we do in any way to stay in business. <laughs> You just have to do a good size. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mine. Thank you, Jake. Okay. Thank you, Jake. Um, this month, I opened my website to find uh, an official um, news from International Astronomical Union, which says official names approved for 86 more stars. So apparently last year, um, the international... A- the IAU named 227 stars because apparently they named exoplanets. And so you can't name exoplanets without naming the stars with, around which they orbit. Oh, okay. so, so they give, they've given official names. So is that a rule that they have in place? I think now it's more like a... It's not like a rule rule, but you can't really name exoplanets without naming the stars, giving the stars proper names and two letters and two letters and like seven bunch of numbers, random numbers, like mm, okay. HD, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. No, it's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so, I'm, I'm not the exoplanet <laughs> expert here, but... Uh, <laughs> see, see I've, I've not heard of any exoplanets being given what we might call names beyond numerical designations, like HD telephone number, as my mm. supervisor said a couple of days ago. <laughs> but then it seems last year they approved names for 31 exoplanets. Oh, okay. And with that came 208... Um, names for stars near and far and oh, okay. so this year they've approved 86 and apparently they've run out of western names to give to stars so they went all the way to aboriginal australia to south africa to oh, chinese okay. maya um oh, i want to name all of them i don't want to see yeah well of course australia and new zealand have proud traditions of astronomy as we see in night sky south every month mm-hmm. yeah so they have um and i would like to um, go to some of the names I found, <laughs> which is okay. Um, there's Akama, Achena, Achurd, Akrab, Akrooks. That's all like the, the A's are a lot. So let me go uh, okay. for 
the bees there's the men bait okay there's a lot of names okay. mm. so you can imagine like what enough of western names to give to stars like we already know some like Ceres and the rest but then there were a lot of names and mm. they had to go all the way to other continents and other mm. old civilizations civilizations to to get names so i found it quite interesting i mean we can't now just stop naming stars with two letters two letters and phone numbers mm. <laughs> it's yeah, quite difficult I, I feel like the the number of stars that are in the universe and uh, the number of planets that um, are potentially around them. Mm. We, we are going to run out of names at some we point. Are gonna run out yeah. of, we'll have to like, yeah. start naming them with... So, yeah, well, there are asteroids in the asteroid belt named after the members of Monty Python. Brilliant. Oh, <laughs> I think we'll, start, we'll get to a point where we'll give them two names. It'll be like a, a, fair, a full name and a surname. <laughs> because we were not of single names. So this is potentially going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I uh, saw an article recently about how a guinea pig rescue was running out of names to name its guinea pigs. So it uh, trained an algorithm, some kind of did machine learning to um, put in existing guinea pig names to wow. name to name new guinea pigs. Oh, uh, we should do that. For stars. <laughs> exactly, we should we should do that for stars. I mean, there, there was there was some r- reasonable names and some that were very much out there. Um but yeah, maybe we should uh start getting computers to think up wacky names for for stars and planets. Well, there are an official group in the IAU which name stars and they are called the International Astronomical Union Division C working group on star names. So we probably should tell them to get an Algorithm or machine yeah. learning. Are you sure you saw that story, or are you just dreaming about your perfect <laughs> PhD project? It 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 definitely is a thing. <laughs> well, that'd be cool. Yeah, it's just put in like old names, and it comes, it spits out like mm. random letters, and like maybe letters without vowels. And you have to like really struggle to name them. <laughs> like random combination of letters of alphabet, and it'd be like really really weird without. Yeah. <laughs> Well, going back to stars quickly, because obviously a lot of the constellations we have in the sky are based on ancient Greek ones. Mm. But a lot of the star names are actually from Arabic. Mm. Yeah. Because it was in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries that they were the world's great astronomers. After the passing of the empires of ancient Egypt and Rome and Greece and places like Mm. that. Yeah. So it it, it 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 makes much sense for them to go back to all these old civilizations like the Mayans, the Arabics, the Chinese to mm. to go for what they call the stars then, and maybe how they even pronounce them mm. will be quite different, and the spelling will be different from how the West the Western world will pronounce them. So. Well, the 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 asteroid that you that uh, you mentioned in your Odinenjek that that was named um, in the Hawaiian language. It right? was indeed. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So Emma, you want to tell us what you have for this minute? Yeah, so um, my odd and end that I brought with me this uh, the show is the is a my my odd and end that I brought with me um, is well, it was an article that I saw um, about a recent study about the magnetic field of a black hole. So some scientists have managed to measure uh, the magnetic field of a 400 miles wide black hole that's about 8,000 light years from Earth. Um, and they found it to be pretty small. It's thousands of times weaker than they, um, than they thought the, uh, a magnetic field around a black hole um, of that size would be. So V404 Cygni um, is about 10 times the mass of the sun. So it's pretty small as black holes go. Um, they can get up to millions or billions times the, the mass of the sun. Getting a bit Brian Cox there. Um, oh, <laughs> oh. 
I don't mean to, but yeah, that that I can see that now. And sorry, I'm... I couldn't resist it. <sighs> I, I will take it as a compliment. I think they measured the magnetic field of this black hole uh, to be four hundred and sixty-one plus or minus twelve Gauss, um, with Gauss being a what one measurement of magnetic field strength. There are ten thousand Gauss in uh, one Tesla. If you're more familiar with that um, measurement of the magnetic of magnetic field strength um but to put that into context so your average fridge magnet that you just have have in your kitchen um is about 50 gauss so this a black hole has got a magnetic field strength of only about five times that of a fridge magnet really yeah genuinely yeah um so it's it's really small um uh, lots of the theories um about um, black holes and uh, and their properties would uh, you would you would expect that um, this this black hole would have a magnetic field of you know millions of Gauss, but no, four hundred and sixty one plus or minus twelve. Oh. Um, so they are basically using this result to. Um, narrow down some constraints on their kind of their emission models um for for black holes um there there is a there is a paper out in um uh, in science um that will that that kind of goes into the the the, the details of uh, of what this study means so yeah so the, i mean i guess the big question is how do you measure the magnetic field of a of a black hole and uh, they basically did this by looking at an x-ray outburst that happened in 2015 uh, okay. in june and you can basically look at the light coming from the black hole so they looked at it in different parts of the spectrum um, they looked they had simultaneous infrared optical x-ray and radio observations and you can look at how long it takes for light in different parts of the spectrum to fade away and that can give you a measurement on the 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 strength of the magnetic field there ah okay so i'm guessing this would be things like synchrotron emission Mm. exactly yes yeah okay so yeah because of course photons themselves aren't charged they're electrically neutral Mm. yeah and speaking of magnets we're now irresistibly drawn to ben shaw and professor tim o'brien with ask an astronomer Hello and welcome to this month's Ask an Astronomer. I'm Benjamin Shaw and I'm here with Professor Tim O'Brien. Hi, Tim. Hello. So it's a bit weird me sitting on this side of the table this time. Normally, Ask an Astronomer, I'm the one answering the questions. Oh, right. Okay. uh, It's a long time since I've done an Ask an Astronomer. Yeah, it's a few months for me, but uh, Yeah. yeah, it's nice to be back. I haven't done anything in a while, so here we are. Our galaxy and others rotate, which presumably stops it collapsing inwards into a massive black hole. This, I believe, has been observed. Do globular clusters have a similar independent rotation to stop their collapse? Has it been observed and measured? And is it consistent with current theories? And that's from Anne Stone. So this is right, right? I mean, I've done this experiment in the lab where you measure the either approach or recession velocity of hydrogen. And from that, you can build up a picture of the rotation of galaxies. So has that been done? The sun, all the stars and all the gas and all the dust all orbit the centre of the galaxy. It takes quite a while to get around the galaxy. The sun has an orbital period around the galaxy of 220 million years. So, you know, seems like a long time. Actually, you remember the sun's about 5 billion years old. So I guess that's getting on for 25 times the sun has been around the galaxy in its lifetime. And at the centre of the galaxy, there is a supermassive black hole. It's about 4 million times the mass of our sun. And yeah, if we weren't orbiting, if we were just plonked stationary, we would in principle feel a gravitational pull from the centre and fall in towards it. It's probably worth 
pointing out that four million times the mass of the sun is only a very tiny fraction of the total mass of the galaxy, though. So in terms of the gravitational pull, it's totally dominated by the other stars and gas that are sort of inside our orbit rather than the black hole. But anyway, that is right. We are rotating. There is a black hole in the middle. Globular clusters, these are big... um, as I'm sure you know, big spherical volumes of stars. So the big balls of stars, they're up to maybe a million stars in a globular cluster. They're maybe a few hundred light years across, something like that, if that gives you a sort of feel for the size of these things. And there's many of them that orbit galaxies. So they, so like our galaxy is like a disk with spiral arms in it. But the globular clusters are sort of outside of that disk and orbiting around the middle in lots of different orientations so they're inclined at different angles to the disk so they don't go around in the same plane as most of the stars if you fit that many stars into that smaller volume then they are quite interesting things you can have as many as 10 stars per cubic light year in the center of a globular cluster or a cube one light year on a side you might have something like 10 stars within that and if you think about the solar neighborhood the nearest other star is four light years away so there'd be many more stars packed more closely together and whether there's this sort of link to the black hole in the middle of our milky way these stars in these globular clusters they do orbit but the globular cluster as a whole doesn't like rotate like our disk does the stars are all on their own independent orbits about in the middle many different orbits all inclined at different angles so it's not like a ball of stuff that's rotating around a a single axis there's many axes that these things rotate around and there are black holes in the middle of them what do we know at the moment about these things i sort of looked up a few recent things there was an interesting fairly recent announcement of there potentially being a black hole in the middle of uh, 47 tuck which is uh, i mean you'll know it as a pulsar astronomer yep very much so yeah. it's got uh, 20 odd millisecond pulsars in it yep. um, the guy that sits next to me in the pulsar office recently demonstrated that there was a potential black hole in the middle of a globular cluster i can't remember if it was this one it right. was one of them yeah um, yeah but yeah it might well be this one because the way that was done was to look at the orbits of these millisecond pulsars so these very fast spinning pulsars and then you can map out their orbits by looking at the properties of the pulses that you see so you can tell whether they're moving towards or away from you you can get an idea of what speed they're moving at and what path they're moving on those orbits give away the presence of the mass at the center that they're orbiting around and there was this implication that there was maybe a few thousand solar mass black hole at the middle of that global cluster so there are some there as well i hope that answers the question yep very much so Question two, is it possible to detect neutrinos and gravitational waves from the same event? And that's from Robert H. Jenkins. The first thing that came to mind when I saw this question was the recent, obviously there's been these recent gravitational wave detections. And the most recent one that attracted a lot of attention was this uh, excitingly named GW170817. So that's one that was observed on the 17th of August 2017. That's where the numbers come from in that name. The reason that was exciting was the first neutron star merger we'd seen, so a collision of two neutron stars. That produced this burst of gravitational waves that was detected by LIGO and Virgo, the gravitational wave detectors. And also, and for the first time, associated with that gravitational wave burst were all these other 
detections at other parts of, across the electromagnetic spectrum. So it was a so-called multi-messenger detection where you get multiple types of information, both electromagnetic waves and gravitational waves. And sure enough, the neutrino people, the people who are interested in detecting neutrinos from space, also looked to see if they could pick up a neutrino burst. You know, subatomic particles, virtually massless particles, very low mass particles, which interact very weakly with matter, so they're very hard to detect. They fly through us. There's billions flying through our brains every second as we're speaking now, mainly coming from the centre of the sun, produced by the nuclear reactions in the centre of the sun. So you need these really exotic detectors to try and detect them. There was a paper you can find on the archive, Search for High Energy Neutrinos from Binary Neutron Star Merger, GW170817 with Antares Ice Cube and the Pierre Auger Observatory. So it was a fun paper to just have a quick look through. These detectors are brilliant. You know, when you think about telescopes, these are some of the most amazing telescopes. Antares is a neutrino telescope which is underneath in the Mediterranean Sea. So it's underwater, just off Toulon in France. It's a 10 megaton scale neutrino detector. That means they use effectively 10 million tonnes of water within which they've got these light detectors. And so they're looking for um, flashes of light, Cherenkov radiation, as these neutrinos fly through the ocean. There's a very small chance they'll interact, but if they do, you get this little flash of light and they can tell the difference between particles that are moving upwards. So coming from the bottom of the sea compared to particles coming downwards and the ones coming downwards are produced by cosmic ray interactions in the atmosphere produce these neutrinos and they compare the two the ones coming upwards have come all the way through the earth weakly interacting and then you get a few interactions in the ocean so there's Antares there's the ice cube observatory which is a gigaton scale detector similar idea a billion tons of ice in this case so it's at the south pole and that looks for a similar thing. And the other one, the Pierre Auger Observatory, which is uh, in Argentina. And it looks for these Cherenkov flashes of light in water in these multiple stations, about 1,600 stations spread over an area of 3,000 square kilometres in Argentina. And that's looking for neutrinos coming from cosmic ray air showers. And in that case, they look for these flashes from cosmic ray showers that are actually produced near the ground. So if you imagine cosmic rays coming from above, and cosmic rays are like protons and nuclei of other atoms, when they hit the atmosphere, they've got a very high chance of interacting with a molecule in the atmosphere. So the cosmic ray showers that they initiate start at the top of the atmosphere and then come down to the detectors on the ground. If this high-energy neutrino comes in, it's got a very low chance of interacting and as it goes through the atmosphere, the density of the atmosphere increases towards the ground. So you're much more likely to get a cosmic ray shower initiated by a neutrino starting near the ground. And so they actually look for ones that come sideways. So they come sideways along the ground rather than coming from above. I mean, they're just cool wow. things to... <laughs> they are cool yeah. things to read about. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is they didn't detect neutrinos from that gravitational wave source. So nobody has done yet but they think they may well do in the future. And if they can, it'll tell us interesting stuff about these neutron star mergers because it, it'll tell us how the particles are accelerated in the gravitational wave event. If we can get to see the neutrinos and get to understand, say, their energy range and so on. Interesting stuff. 
Yeah, and I suppose it depends on the nature of the event that produced the gravitational wave as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, like you can imagine if two black holes collide, there might be no electromagnetic output at all, yep. uh, no neutrino output, and we'd only see that signature in gravitational waves. Yeah, and is that there might not be an electromagnetic counterpart to a black hole merger because everything ends up within the event horizon of the new black hole or something is possibly that... i mean yeah, yeah i guess it depends on just how rapid mm. the merger actually turns out to be and if you look at the, right i mean that's one of the things we're trying to sort out with pulsar timing arrays by mm-hmm. just using a, effectively an array of pulsars as a massive detector mm. and if there's some kind of correlated change in all of these pulsars then we know something's happened mm. uh, but in those cases we're trying to detect stochastic background from all over the universe rather than mm. um, rather than just a single event from one But yeah, I know what you mean about these neutrino detectors. They're amazing. I mean, I love the pictures of Snow Lab where you've got people inside just rowing around in a boat. I'd love to have a go at that. Maybe went into the wrong field. On to question three. This is from John Bodler, who's a man of few words. Gravity, what is it? Where is it? How do you turn it off? (laughs) Yes, I like that. But it's a good question. And it's a very good question, of course. Philosophy of physics thing, isn't it, sometimes with these things? I mean, one of the things we do is we observe the effects of something and then we develop a model for that tries to explain these observed effects. And you would go back to someone like Newton and his falling apple and then working out that gravity was some sort of inverse square law force. The strength of the force dropped off as the inverse square of the distance between two masses. Mass is the key thing here. Mass is a property of matter that appears to be the thing that effectively generates gravity, if you like. It's that that has the property of a gravitational force. So if something's got mass, it will exert a gravitational force. The modern interpretation is general relativity, Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is a geometrical model for gravity, which says that we've got space-time and space-time is curved. There's a physicist called John Wheeler that has the classic description, which says mass tells space-time how to curve and space-time tells mass how to move. The way I think of it is uh, you think about a landscape, so you think about hills and valleys, and you think about a hill, and you put a, you put a ball at the top of, your, of the hill, or you put yourself at the top of a nice grassy hill in the summer, and you roll down the hill. You can envisage a hill as being like a curvature in space-time. The gradient of the hill is what we feel as the gravitational force, so we roll down the hill. In that sort of general relativity model, mass, curved space, that produces the valleys in space-time, and you and other masses roll towards the bottom of those valleys. We are pulled towards the bottom of those valleys. That's the force, it's the gradient of that gravitational potential. What is it? That's our understanding. Mass is a whole different other kettle of fish. We're perhaps reliant on our particle physics colleagues to tell us about yeah, Higgs bosons yeah. and what the origin of mass might be. We've got a few of those. We have got them around, yeah, in the, in the next building along from here, <laughs> so maybe we'll drag one in and get, get them to tell us about that at some point. So um, where, where, where is gravity then? Is gravity well, everywhere? Gravity is everywhere, yeah. Obviously, the farther from a mass you get, the weaker the gravity is. When you think about these valleys in space-time, there's a deep dip in the middle and then the gradient is shallower towards the edges. So you feel a weaker force of gravity. That's the inverse square law Newton came up with. But it does go on through the whole universe. The thing that comes up quite a lot, you hear people talk about zero gravity, and I've come across confusion sometimes where you might imagine that if you go up to the space station, you've gone to a place where there is no gravity. And that's just not true. There is gravity in the space station. When you see these pictures of space astronauts holding a glass of water or pouring a glass of water out and the water doesn't just fall to the floor of the space station, it looks like there's no gravity. 
they are only, what is it, 400 kilometres or so above the surface of the Earth. The radius of the Earth is 6,000 kilometres. They're skimming the surface of the Earth. They're hardly any farther from the mm. centre of the Earth than we are. Yeah. So the force of gravity at the space station is very similar. I think France is often closer to us than the space station. That's exactly right. You go, so, so what's London from here? Uh, 200 three, miles or so? Yeah, so 300, 300 kilometres or something yeah. like that. So it's not much farther than the distance from London yeah, to Manchester. They're still very much in the atmosphere. Yeah. I think periodically the International Space Station has to fire its thruster to re equalise its orbit because it's feeling drag from the atmosphere. So there is gravity at the space station. It's pretty much the same gravitational force here. Of course the difference is they're in free fall. So they are orbiting the Earth. They are falling around the Earth. That's just like if, God forbid, you were in a lift and something broke and you just fell down. You would not, you know, you're moving at the same speed of the lift downwards in the gravitational field. So you would be, effectively, you could float within that space. That's free fall. Wouldn't um, it be doesn't nice mean, for very long. Would wouldn't it? be nice for very long, but that's free fall. That's not zero gravity. So gravity is everywhere. So where is it everywhere? How do you turn it off? Well, that would be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> we could have our... Back to the future hoverboards or whatever. We nobody's found a way of turning gravity off. Yeah, in that I guess sense. I guess you can counteract it in some ways by, as you say, falling yeah. at the same rate as a planet's gravitational field allows. Um, I love yeah. the idea as well that you can actually turn gravity on if you're out in an effectively weightless environment somewhere. That you're on yeah. a spaceship, you could rotate that spaceship and effectively feel sure. force gravity. And it's yeah. a similar idea to the lift. Yeah, so you're replicating the effect of gravity in that case, but yeah. you know, it's not actually gravity itself you're feeling of course it's, no, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Just it's another acceleration it's another force you'll get the same uh, effect from but mm. uh, and anti-gravity or zero gravity is not really something that exists as far as we know at the moment anyway tim o'brien thanks very much thank you thanks for that ben and tim and now on to the feedback and we've got feedback thank you guys for getting back to us and for our post we have a postcard from sarah connell that says hey there jodcast can't have you getting no post. Thank you, Sarah. I got to visit Dodrell in October. I took a sneaky photo towards the control room and couldn't help but wonder if I could know any of the voices. Smiley face. Mm. Oh, I wish I wish they let us into the control room. Oh, definitely not. They don't let us into the control room. Sorry, Sarah. So, yeah. Whoever you saw wasn't us. <laughs> mm. There are a few faces on the postcard. So yeah, it's a really glossy postcard, actually. Very nice, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah, you, but... it's a really pretty postcard. Thank you, Sarah, yeah. for getting back to us. And so for feedback through the website, we have to address a bit of controversy here, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in the wake of our November Extra episode. So we've had an email here. I will leave the, sen- I will leave the sender anonymous. And so here's what they have to say. Hi, Jodcast team. Thanks so much for all of your hard work over the years compiling and presenting the Jodcast. It's my favourite podcast and I always get excited when a new episode comes out. I appreciate how in-depth you get with your science content and how all of you are enormous nerds. And very famous <laughs> at that. I am. I am an enormous nerd, yeah. can I confirm? Guilty yeah. here. <laughs> and I also really appreciate that you keep the Jodcast accessible to a general audience so people of all ages and sensitivities can enjoy it. That being said... I would like to make one suggestion. I've noticed that sometimes you touch on current social issues, such as in the November 2017 Extra Edition, when you discussed advocating women in science and the controversy surrounding distrust of scientists. So that was our interview with Dame Jocelyn Bell by now. Oh, okay. 
I know you mean well, and these are issues that affect you, but I enjoy astronomy because it's usually an escape for me from topics that can be divisive and contentious. When I listen to the Jodcast, I really just want to learn cool stuff about the universe and ideas and results from the latest research, not have to be reminded of how messed up humanity can be sometimes. It throws an emotional wrench into my relaxation time. Anyway, I know this is an unusual bit of feedback, but maybe in the future you could consider the feelings of sensitive individuals like myself when compiling topics for the Jodcast. You're all wonderful. Thank you all for the science, and Jod on. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so, for the feedback. Naomi and Emma, as my fellow presenters and as women in physics, what are your initial reactions to that? Um, I thank you for the feedback and... I think I understand your sentiment. Sometimes you just need to get away from everything else, the news and all the sensationalism going on. And we also want to to not be too, as Jodcast, we want to also get an opinion of really um, high-level people in various topics. And Jocelyn Bennell was like, is one of the, the best in to talk about this this um, particular topic. And so we just had to get her opinion. And so how it's on Jodcast, it's not like trying to put a divisive topic on Jodcast, but we want people to know what the current um, professors and people in this field are talking about. And we we are sorry if it's kind of um, kind of intruded on your me time with Jodcast. We're happy Jodcast is your me time, but other people also appreciate it and we'll try not to put too much of a, uh, controversial topics on Jodcast and make mm. it a, a really astronomy, science-y, fun time for everyone. So, mm. I think the thing is, yeah. the, the, these topics are always going to be difficult to handle. And, and, mm. and the thing is, everyone has got their own experiences yeah. as well. Um, and different people may have been affected by certain issues more than other people. And, you know, so sometimes, it, like I said, science does go hand in hand with some of these issues sometimes. Sometimes you, you, you shouldn't separate them because sometimes th- these kind of issues do impact on the Well, science. some people do face these issues. Mm. I personally mm. haven't, but in other countries or even in the UK, people have faced this issue. As being a married, as being a Ghanaian in the UK and being a woman, I've not really faced that issue, but I'm mm. sure people have, well, maybe not in science, maybe mm. somewhere else, even academia, doing a PhD, doing whatever. People face these issues, so sometimes it's good to know what the other side is saying about mm. it. And mm. so, well, yeah, what do you have to say? So Jake? it's probably fair to say that these issues aren't unique mm. to science. No, but we can perhaps use science as the lens to examine these problems. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that would be a, a fair summation? Yeah. 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 So, thank you for your feedback, though. We yeah, really no, appreciate thank you. it. It's, it's definitely a discussion worth having because, yeah, so sometimes. Yeah, you, you don't want to cloud out things with, with issues, but then mm. equally, you don't just want to bury the issues away. So it, it is a tricky balance to follow, and I guess we can reassess mm. uh, what kind of balance we're striking with that. Yeah, because when I initially got this feedback email, because as executive producers, myself and Naomi are privy to the feedback channels, I was thinking about how best to respond to this, because it is a complex issue. And... That evening, I happened to come across a brief poem, which I think actually summarised things really nicely. Oh, what's given? Shall I have a reading? Go on. Yes, go on. Bring out the poems. Jodcast poetry reading. (laughs) We should have an episode that is like poetry, (laughs) astronomy poetry. That'd be so cool. Maybe in April Fools. (laughs) (laughs) Don't give it away. (laughs) It's all right. We can cut that bit out. (laughs) Over to you, Jake. (laughs) Okay, so it's it's a brief piece, simply titled. The message. 
Silence, they say, is the voice of complicity. But silence is impossible. Silence screams. Silence is a message, just as doing nothing is an act. Let who you are ring out and resonate in every word and every deed. Yes, become who you are. There is no sidestepping your own being or your own responsibility. What you do is who you are. You are your own comeuppance. You become your own message. You are the message. Who is the poet? Oh, let me just open your book again. <laughs> so that was a piece by Leonard Peltier from his book, Prison Writings, My Life is My Sundance. Cool. That was, that was really good. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> so I don't want to go prodding things unnecessarily. The last thing we want is to start a fight with the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> we love you, listeners. Please we don't do. fight us. <laughs> so I'm more careful next time. I've said my piece. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Thank you. So now I guess a bit of um, uh, feedback along similar lines. We've uh, had a message on Facebook from Andrew Horner, um, who says, the highlight of the Fiona show. I'm so glad I, I was gonna, that bit. I was going to say that was, I I did have a good chuckle listening to that. Um, that, that was brilliant. Stroke of editing genius. Yeah. Um, so yes, the highlight of the Fiona show um, was the discussion with Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Um, I listened with my 11-year-old aspiring scientist daughter, who was rather taken aback by the attitudes of earlier generations to science education for girls. It is to be hoped that the work of Dame Jocelyn and others will continue to improve things for her generation. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Yeah, no, I, I and things are changing. As yeah. I said, like I've not really felt any, and and it's it's quite amazing. That's mm. it's a huge difference from then till now. Mm. It's a huge difference, and it's quite amazing. And I hope it gets even better, and we get more women in science, mm. and not be just like twenty people in, a, in like two hundred audience, and there are only twenty women doing science. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, also from Andrew, uh, thank you to Ben and Charlie for all the great shows, but especially for Jodcast Live, which my daughter and I really enjoyed attending. You deserve your place as a double star in the constellation of Jodcasters past. All the best for the remainder of your PhD studies. Naomi and Jake have a tough act to follow. Indeed we do. We I, really I, do. We I have think, such big shoes to fill. I think these guys are up to it, though. I, they are big <laughs> shoes, uh, but I think you'll do a good job. Well, thank, thank you for your confidence. Thank you, <laughs> thank you Emma. So Twitter, we have no message feedback from Twitter. Please do write us through Twitter. For Flickr, we don't have any Flickr messages, but John Merle has sent in an astrophotography of an iridium flare from 2009 July. Thank yep. you, John. So I think that was in the wake of your odd and end piece. Yeah. About oh, about the iridium flare. Satellites are going to be deorbited. Yeah. You get those photos in while you can. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, there'll be archival images now. Yeah, mm. because when they go down. There won't be any more chance to yeah. any more chance to take the photographs of it. Yeah. So hopefully we can work out a sensible way to display that picture on our website or at least yeah. link to it so people yeah. can have a look at it. And so if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via our website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post the addresses on the website. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Professor Andrew Coates and Ian McDonald for the interviews. The editors were Alex Clark, 
Tom Scrag, Jake Morgan, and Andrea Dugaru. The producers are Naomi Asabre-Frimpong and Jake Morgan. Until the next time, Jordan! The show finished, and Niall was rudely awakened by his boss coming back into the room. What's going on? You were meant to make sure that nothing came out from the portal. Hmm, nothing did, I swear. We have come to present our research findings on pulsars. You will listen. You will obey. And them too. It's trying to show us its findings about pulsars. Run for your sanity. And as for you, you're fired. Niall ran outside, completely dejected at being fired from his only paying job. He turned to his cat. Why didn't you get the rat when it came in? You're a useless cat. Yeah. And you sound nothing like John Barrowman. I'd best go home. Just as he turned away from the university, he heard a voice in the distance. What was that? Chancellor of Manchester? Yeah. Okay, I'm sold. But how will I get to the university from here? Help! Help! Can anyone help me? I can try, good sir. What's the problem? I'm in charge of the roads around here, and the Oxford Road leading to the university is completely glowed up with roadworks. For the tenth year running, the council will have my head this. Oh dear, but that's exactly where I need to go. Cat, do you have any ideas? Yeah. You're beyond useless. Wait, I have an idea. Hey everyone, there's a pulsar meeting in the astronomy department. <laughs> what is that? It's it's clearing away all the roadways and trampling all the cars. Yeah, great, isn't it? The road chief thanked him profusely. Thank you, profusely. Thank you. <laughs> and then, Niall headed in the direction that the monster had gone. Soon, he found himself at the university. Here at last, now to find my fame and fortune. Where are they? Where are what? The golden PhD theses. Where are they? Oh no, not another one. Yeah, looks like it. But they must be here. They must. Who told you about the golden thesis thing? You read it somewhere? On the side of a bus, perhaps? No, wait, no. But, but this is no time for political commentary. Try upstairs. A whole load of rats just went into the pulsar room. But what about that hideous monster? Oh, that. That was just a stressed postgrad having a sugar crash. Once they make it to the snack club in the student office, they'll be better. Before he could take another step, the King of Manchester entered the building and hailed him. Hail! Before warmly grasping his hand. You, young man, have saved the city from the curse of the Oxford Road roadworks, the threat of imminent destruction by ill beasts, and a scourge of the rat population. I don't know how you did it. Nor do I. But in return... I hereby grant you anything you want, if it is within my power. Really? I want a PhD then. 
Don. And is that a cat that sounds exactly like John Barrowman? Yeah, you can have it if you like. I must have it. For all the good it'll do you. I must have it. Look, I think it's about to speak. Yes, finally. Come on, John Barrowman cat, say something. Can anyone do a John Barrowman voice? (laughs) Oh, it's no good. But it was worth a shout, don't you think? But then, emerging from the Pulsar room... You were not present for our Pulsar colloquium! Explain! Of course we weren't. Yeah, in this dimension, Pulsars aren't a cool topic to study. Oh, yes, they are! Oh, no, they're not! Oh, yes, they are! Oh, no, they're not! No, enough of that. Come on. What did I tell you about being in the wrong fandom? Well, that's that then. Oh, well. Now tell me, have you heard of a podcast called Seldom Serious? <laughs>